This morning we find ourselves in Mark 14, verses 26 to 52. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, Mark 14, 26 through 52. Uh, the last several weeks have been the, the final week of, of Jesus in, in Jerusalem. And now here we are on the final night of Jesus uh, in Jerusalem prior to his, well, his impending his impending betrayal, which is actually happening as we, as we read this morning here. Um, let's pray, though, as we, as we come to God's Word. Let's pray with hearts uh, and souls that are willing and able to listen. Lord God, we approach you in this time as people who who are in deep need of your Spirit blowing afresh across us this morning. For your Spirit to go forth with your Word to, to bring life to our souls, to, as, as Ezekiel saw, the, the bones that were scattered and strewn, the dry bones across the, the valley floor. And your Spirit went forth and brought them together, bone to bone, attached them together with sinews, brought flesh and skin upon their bodies, and then finally then brought a wind, brought breath into their, into their lungs. The very life of your spirit going forth here with a word from you that was, that was proclaimed. Lord, we ask that you would do the same thing this morning here. That that same spirit which brought those bones to life in that vision would be the spirit that blows forth a fresh amongst us this morning, and that it would be a smell of a sweet aroma of Jesus Christ, although he was the one who was crucified, who was betrayed, who, was betrayed, who, who took the cup for us. Pray that that would be a sweetness to us, that it would give life to us this morning, and that your spirit then would, would grow us so that we might recognize our weakness, but yet see the increasing and incredible beauty of Jesus. We ask that you would make us more in his image and build faith in us in this time. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This is Mark 14, verses 26 to 52. This is the word of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, 
Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Amen. We'll be celebrating Thanksgiving dinner in just a few weeks. We will all be gathering around tables. We'll be enjoying... Uh, the, the trimmings will be enjoying turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy, creamed corn, all of those things. And we'll all be gathered around those tables and we'll be eating and celebrating and feasting. But imagine though at, one of the, at the, the table where you are celebrating Thanksgiving in the middle of, of the joy and the laughter and the banter and the, the talking uh, with one another here. You have a beloved uncle who stands up. And he announces to everyone that he has stage four cancer that has metastasized throughout his body, has weeks to live. Imagine you're at a birthday dinner for a beloved friend. And you're having a good time out at dinner. You're celebrating. You're you're enjoying the fine cuisine. And then your friend, then she announces to everyone sitting at the table there, everyone who had just moments before been feasting and laughing, that she has just suffered a miscarriage the week prior. All of these are tables of celebration. They're times of joy, yet they're interrupted, though, by news of shock and darkness. And that's similarly what happens here with Jesus as he's sitting together with his disciples, reclining at the Passover meal. They are having a time together there. They are enjoying uh, the the annual feast, a time of of rejoicing and thinking back to the the night when when God redeemed Israel. And they're having, they're celebrating with lamb and, and the cup. And they're eating there and then Jesus drops the bombshell amongst them all. One of you will betray me. And then he says, for it's written, it's written in the scriptures that I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will be stricken and you all will be scattered. In the middle of this meal, he announces that there is betrayal. And that he will then be forsaken by his disciples. He will be left all alone in the literal and in the metaphorical darkness. 
You have one moment full of joy and goodness and splendor and life. And then suddenly here, with, this, with a few words spoken, you have it upended into darkness and uncertainty. Obviously, you have it for Jesus, the darkness there, though without uncertainty, which was, why, which was the source of anguish really for him. Because he knew with certainty what it was that he was going to face. He knew of his impending betrayal. He knew of what would happen to him in the next hours. He knew that his time had finally come and that he was about to drink the cup that the Father had prepared for him. He was about to suffer betrayal. He was about to suffer loneliness. The impending physical pain of the cross, though, mixed with the emotional anguish as he would take on human sin and as he would be alienated from his Father. But it's also for the disciples too, the the darkness and the uncertainty for for the disciples. They begin in part to comprehend the darkness that Jesus was about to go through. And they in turn then begin, begin to undergo their own time of darkness. They start to realize that being a disciple was going to cost them. That their identification with him was going to call them to stand with him in a time of suffering. And yet though, despite their resolve... That, they, that they, they affirm, Jesus tells them, you're all going to fall away, though. He says, you're all, though, going to be unfaithful disciples. Which for these, these men who had traveled with Jesus and been with him for these, these years, that was a painful shock. But there was also the anguish here for them because they were about to lose a friend. Jesus was about to go undergo immense suffering, though, and in a manner that pained them, because it, went, it was going to be through betrayal by one of them. And for them also, as friends, they would, were going to be shocked. They were shocked then by the announcement that they were going to leave him. No, Jesus, we're your friends, right? Now, none of us are able to plan when these times of darkness come upon us. We see it happening to the disciples. We see it happening to them as being the seedlings of the church. A church that was born from darkness and suffering as its Lord himself underwent suffering. Happens also to disciples for the, and to, as individuals within the church. as people who themselves were unable to stand up as faithful disciples when they needed it most. But it happens to people just like you and me though too. We recognize that there are seasons in life when these things will happen, when these times of darkness will happen, but we don't, though, always know when they will come. And news and events which fall like, they're like news and events here which fall like bombs into our lives and they devastate and they bring seasons of darkness. Sometimes they're very long seasons of darkness. Sometimes they are seemingly impenetrable darkness. So what do we do in these times of darkness? What do we do in these times of this deep unknown and the uncertainty here? What do we do in these times when we recognize that suffering is beginning to draw in tightly around us? Well, from this passage, I want to look at three points here. The first isn't what we do, but it's actually what we don't do. First point is it's not our determination. It's not by our own determination because we are weak. Because we're weak. Walking to the Mount of Olives here as, as they have just left the Passover meal from as they've left the upper room and they're going up there uh, to Gethsemane. Jesus tells them that night that he says, you're all going to fall away. 
quotes from them, Zechariah 13, 7. He says, I will strike the shepherd and then the sheep will be scattered. And their first response, though, epitomized by Peter, of all people, says, even though they're all going to fall away, I'm not going to fall away. I'm not going to fall away. And then the other was echoing too, yeah, we're not going to fall away. Come on, Jesus. And then Jesus responds to Peter, no, no, Peter, you are actually going to deny me three times before the morning time, before the night is over, three times. Now, all of these noble responses, right, all of these great promises that, that, G, that these disciples give to Jesus, oh, and that ought to be our resolve to the Lord. But they are, we see very quickly that these are all promises that they cannot and do not live up to. There are promises that they make relying upon their own grit. No, Jesus, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. By their own strength. They're holding on here by their own endurance. It is their own determination and their resolve to stand with Jesus in the darkness. And it's their resolve to persevere, to white-knuckle it through the desperate times. And that's a common response to to human adversity, isn't it? That's self-determination. It happens amid discipleship as we seek to follow Jesus, right? I want to be a faithful disciple, Jesus. I'm going to follow you and it won't happen again this time. I've got this. I just need to hold tight and I will endure under pressure. This time I'll stand. I'll stand in temptation. This time I won't wilt under pressure. This time I will remain faithful. I'm going to go white knuckle at God. But for how many times, for as many times as we say that, though, as many times as we say we're going to hold on tightly, how many times does our grip fail? How many times do we slip? But see, the same sort of thing here of the self-determination and trying to, to gut it out on our own, that happens when the realities of life in the fall come upon us. God, I'm in this dark time. I just need to get through this. I just need to be strong and I need to stand up to this. But that's not good news to someone who's suffering through mental health or through deep loss. That's not good news to someone who's suffering through a diagnosis. That's not good news for someone who's having difficulty being a faithful disciple. Because just like the disciples, despite our own determination, failure still happens, doesn't it? They cannot live up to their promises. Even the most basic, they can't live up to it. Jesus takes the three core disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, and he, with, with him to pray, says, you all come here, sit down here, all right, watch and pray while I go off a few more paces and I pray there. But what happens? Three times they fall asleep, right? Three times Jesus comes up and he says, has to wake him up. What are you all doing? And they're baffled and they're shamed before Jesus. They don't have an answer for him. And then when Judas and the mob arrive, what do they end up doing at the end? They all leave Jesus behind. They all flee. Right? Those words, I'll never leave you, that Peter said earlier that night. And then what do they do in the, the most desperate hour for Jesus? They, they flee. They run away. Can you imagine the shame that they must have felt? How about the shame of Peter? Peter, whose name was actually Rock. <laughs> The one, the rock upon which I will, I will build my church here, right? Upon the, your, uh, this confession of yours, Peter. Peter, whose name was Rock, you'd expect, ah, oh, the man, you know, a strong man here. No, he wasn't as strong and determined as he thought. His resolve wasn't like a rock. His resolve was more like sand. It's one thing to run in fear, though. 
And it's an entirely different thing to trade a promise to remain for public shame. We have these curious verses in 51 and 52 of a, a young man following after them all here in, in this. Uh, who then is wearing nothing but a linen sheet, uh, following after them in the darkness and is seized. Right? We don't know exactly who this man is, but it's, it's postulated that, that the, the original readers here, that the early church would have known who this was. But it does, whoever it was, even though he was unknown, it doesn't matter. But he demonstrates, though, just how far our own weakness and our own self-determination will get us in these difficult times. Because there he was, following after Jesus, looking at all this here, and then he's seized. The easier thing to do would be to just allow yourself to be seized with him. But instead, he actually sheds the the linen sheet and he runs away naked. He would rather rather be willing, he's willing to run home and be shamed all the way naked there than to actually stand with Jesus. That's the reality of weak disciples. We may not be running naked through the streets for our own self-preservation, but in moments, though, when we think about how strong we are, we find out that our strength isn't quite as firm as we imagined it to be. We, get, we begin to see the reality of, of our own human determination. And none of these things that they gave, none of these, these, these words that the disciples spoke were false promises, but they were promises, though, made by individuals who didn't realize their own nature. So often they... We have overinflated views of our own strength. I love it when kids flex their muscles and they, they show you just how strong they think they are. They're like, mm, right? How, how, show me your muscles, you know? And they do the little, and their veins pop out, you know? It's great. How strong are you? I'm really strong. And then show me how strong you are. And they need help lifting up even moderately uh, weighted, moderately heavy objects. But the thing is, just like kids, it's easy for us also to get in over our heads and for us to think about how strong we think that we are. The same goes also when we walk through dark and difficult times. I'm strong. I can just hold on. I can white-knuckle my way through this. I will make it through to the end here based on my own grit and resolve. I mean, how many times have you heard... In the face of a diagnosis, someone say, you're strong. I know you'll get through this. What about the people who aren't strong and don't know it? What about those people who think that they're strong, but really aren't? Human resolve is as fickle as our desires. What do we love more in that moment? I talk to someone who's fighting an addiction. All the resolve that they have in the world, but they know how their determination, how weak it really is, though. Being a disciple entails commitment, but the confidence, though, as we follow after Jesus, isn't in our own strength. The second point, it's not our determination. Second point here, prayer. Because of a trust in God's will. It's prayer because it trusts in God's will. See, prayer acknowledges two things. Prayer acknowledges, one, who we are. It acknowledges our weakness. It acknowledges our inability, that we have feet which are made of clay. It also acknowledges who God is, his firmness, his sufficiency, his sovereignty, his power. And not only that, though, his trustworthiness and his willingness. 
that he has fatherhood to the weak and to the defenseless. Prayer is an active expression of our faith in and our dependence upon our Father, the Almighty God. Hence why Jesus then tells the disciples to pray in this dark hour of need. He finds them asleep. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Temptation to what? To leave and abandon Jesus, to fall away. Their commitment and resolve doesn't matter. Temptations will still come. And temptation is strong. How easily we lay aside our promises of commitment right, to justify or to minimize in some twisted way our sin in a particular moment. Or to dip a toe in and find ourselves sucked in yet again. But Jesus' words in verse 38 are so true. The spirit is will, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The answer isn't to commit ourselves again or to try to stand on our own as our dark times come in. The answer is to acknowledge our own frailty and to pray for strength as we endure in trouble, as, as we face trouble. Because Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed here in the most desperate time. Right? The Son of God here, yet, yet humanity with a humanity that, that is as real as mine, that's as real as yours. He was, in one sense, in a, in a spiritual sense here, he was the strongest man ever, the strongest faith ever, and yet still he was driven to immense sorrow. Verse 34, he's, he's crying out here. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. He is talking about a sorrow that is so heavy, a sorrow that is so deep, an, a, an emotional weight that is so crushing, it really killed, it nearly killed him. It brought him to the brink of despair, of death here. I think it's important to see that this, even though here we have Jesus, all right, this, this lively faith, the strongest faith ever, though the strength of our faith doesn't correlate to the darkness over us. Strong faith doesn't act as rays of sun to chase away all of our dark clouds. Just simply having faith doesn't prevent darkness from, from coming upon us. Faith doesn't negate our sorrows or serve as an alternative to them, but rather faith looks amid the sorrow and amid the darkness and looks to God with trust. See, Jesus, the only truly faithful one, had the ultimate suffering and the ultimate darkness right before them. He faced a cup. He faced a cup that would be given to him by his Father. Not a cup of blessing that he had shared with his disciples around that table just before. But a cup of curse. A cup full of sin. A cup full of God's wrath. A cup of despair. A cup of absolute horror that would have actually, would, might actually kill us if we had just simply looked into the contents of that cup. Why was that cup before him? Because it was the only way to rescue his people. It was the only way to heal their hearts. And Jesus drank it because he loved his disciples. He loves his people and he loves his father and he trusted that this was the only way to save sinners. He cries out in verse 36, though, Abba, Father, Abba, with this, with this, this cry, this deep, intimate cry to, to God, almost as, as, as a child to a father. Abba, Father, Please remove this cup. 
But then he says, yet not what I will, but yours be done. What he's saying there on that night, what he's saying there on his knees in the garden, this is going to kill me in an agonizing way, Father. I am going to suffer the worst loss through your wrath that is poured upon me, and I will be alienated from you. But I trust you. I trust you because it's the only way. I know that you are good and that you are faithful to what you say. I know that there is glory. I love you, Father. And I love these people. I love our people whom I'm about to drink this for. This was perhaps the, the, the moment where Jesus' testing and temptation throughout his whole life was strongest. And it recalls here, though, another moment in Scripture of, of, of immense testing of a wrestling of wills and desires that happened in another garden where Adam and Eve listened to the lie that, that it was, there was a better way for them to live. And they didn't trust in what God had told them. They didn't submit to what God had said, but they instead rebelled and they reached out and took the fruit that was forbidden from them. And it resulted in a cup of wrath being filled to the brim and being handed to humanity as what we deserve. But now, though, in this garden on the night of Jesus' betrayal, Jesus submitted to the Father's will, to what the Father went all the way until death. And by doing so, undid death, which entered into the garden in the very first place as Adam followed after his own will. See, it was Adam's insubordination that resulted in death, but Jesus' submission that night there brings life to us. Jesus' Prayer in the garden shows us something important. Prayer doesn't mean that everything is going to be okay. Prayer isn't a, mean, a way of escape from times of darkness. Prayer doesn't rescue us from the darkness. It doesn't deliver us from dark times, and it doesn't ever promise to. But prayer, though, is trust in a God who promises deliverance through trials and darkness. Trust in him to see us through to the other side and to see us through safely. Now, safety doesn't mean that we won't get hurt. Safety doesn't mean that we won't ever suffer loss. Safety means that God will be with us and he will carry us through to the other side, even if it means resurrection. See, from his prayer here, Jesus says, from, from the, the, the prayer of Jesus, we see that it's okay to pray for what we want, for his favorable outcomes. He knew what the cup was going to be. He knew it wasn't something that he was particularly looking forward to. And there's not, it's not wrong to pray for what we want in a particular situation as long as we are more accepting of the Father's will. Your will be done. We, sometimes we tack that into our prayers as, as a caveat almost, right? For, as a passive way for us to not pray boldly. But we ought to pray boldly. The scriptures tell us to pray boldly, right? And then also still trust and accept that the Father is good even if our prayers aren't answered in the way that we thought. It was like this spring as we went through our Sunday school, the adult Sunday school on a praying life. And we, one of the words that kept, we kept talking about over and over is, God my adversary or is God my father? Is he the best father? Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, if we pray that maybe 
What needs changing is my desires. And he does that. It's not our determination. We come to God in prayer. And our third point, we come to God in prayer with confidence. We come, God, we come to God with prayer in confidence because Jesus took the cup. Jesus took the cup not only to please his Father, but because he, along with the Father, loves his people. He loved his disciples even as he himself faced his own desperate hour with intense prayer. He comes back from praying and he finds them asleep and he wakes them up though. He reminds them to pray in anticipation of the coming hour. Watch and pray. He's watching over them. He's looking over them there. Pray that they wouldn't fall in, uh, away amid temptation to leave. See, even as they lay, as, lay asleep there in a vulnerable position, Jesus is still expressing a care for them. He's a, uh, he is expressing and he's, he's living out a spiritual watchfulness over them. Jesus took the cup for the sins of his people, including for their sins and their sins of impending failure and abandonment. He loved them amid their failures. And he loved them knowing in advance of their failures, not just that they would fail, but their specific failures that were happening there in the garden. And he loved them still enough to drink the cup of their failures, of those failures that were happening right there all the way down to the dregs. None of that took him by surprise. He told them all of this ahead of time. He knew of their coming failures. He knew of their failures against him. And he still loved them. None of their sin took him by surprise. Friends, none of our sin takes him by surprise. After all, he saw our sin in the cup when he took it, right? He knows full well all about our sin. In fact, he knows it more than we do. He wasn't shocked by, by their leaving him and abandoning him on that night. He wasn't shocked when Peter denied him. He wasn't shocked when that guy ran away naked. Sin shouldn't take us by surprise. Not if we are honest with human sinfulness. And that includes both our sin and also includes the sin of others. In fact, by knowing our sin, we should be understanding of other people's sins. Now, Understanding and acceptance aren't the same thing. Understanding someone else and their sins doesn't mean that we accept their sins. But rather, knowing our sin, we should be understanding of their sin because it's an understanding of sharing our same weakness that we have. And each moment someone sins against us, it's an opportunity to exalt the grace of Jesus. To exalt the grace of Jesus towards them by extending grace. Exalting the grace of Jesus towards us because he showed us grace in the first place. And exalting the grace of Jesus that through the Spirit he is continuing to transform us and work in us to make us more forgiving people. See, this cup, that cup that Jesus had that night, that cup changes our relationship with God. We are able to pray to the Father with the same intimacy because of Jesus. Jesus drank it all. He drank the whole cup down to make us sons and daughters with him. Sons and daughters of the Most High God. So that we too can cry out in our times of darkness, Abba, Father, with the deep intimacy, with that deepest intimacy of G that Jesus has with the Father. And where we can know God as a loving Father. And that intimacy through Jesus then is why we can be confident in prayer. 
through the cup, through the cup that he drank. That the cup that he drank then is life for us. Jesus would be struck, right? He would be, be struck and the sheep would be scattered, but though he would be raised then, right? Him being stricken, him drinking the cup was death for him, but it is life for us. And so for us, and even in darkness, we can look to the Father and we can cry out to him, Abba, Father, and cry out to him as a father, as the giver of life for us. The one who gave Jesus life is the one who gives us life too. The one who will lovingly restore us as he did the Son, even going through and passing through his moments of darkness. So what does all of this, though, here, what does all of this do for us in our own seasons of darkness? By drinking the cup, by Jesus drinking the cup, we know God differently. He's not someone for us to be afraid of. But he's a caring father who gave us his son and is present with us always through his spirit who bears us up in our own weaknesses. Because relying on your own endurance, being confident in yourself and just trying to white-knuckle your way through life, through even the desperate times of life, all of it leads to failure. Instead, we see here to look to God and to pray and to trust that he would be the one who upholds you. Because he who did not spare his own for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Lord God, show us that we are weak people. We may affirm that with our lips, but it is another thing to feel it down into the depths of our souls. that even when times of darkness come, we are weak to do anything about it. And how can we stand? How can we go forward? How can we move ahead? Lift up our eyes then and drive us to you in faithful prayer. Because Jesus Christ was faithful to us. Because you are a faithful father. Because, because we, you, are, you call us our, your, your children. And we are your children because of your son. And so give us then a confidence, not in ourselves, but give us a confidence in your strength. Give us a confidence in your care. Give us a confidence in your person and all of who you say that you are. Prepare our hearts as we come to the table in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.